Good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Does the name Tim O'Donnell ring a bell with any of you? Tim O'Donnell is uh, an American triathlete. He is considered one of the fittest men on the planet. He has had over 50 podium finishes. He has won over 20 times in competitions around the globe, including the U.S. Uh, Pro Ironman in 2011 and the Ironman 70.3 in 2012. But it was last year they did some 10. It came up to Jesus and asked him, what is the foremost commandment of all? And Jesus responds with this. The foremost is here, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And I love how the scribe responds here. Right, teacher. Yeah, well, of course he was right. He's Jesus. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus tells the scribe, you're, you're close. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And then pay close attention to what is written in verses 35 and following. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus is teaching the teachers here, and this is something that he did quite often. He asked, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, he's not directly referring to himself yet. What he is really asking is, how can the scribes, the teachers of the law, say that God's anointed king who is to come is the son of David? Then he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1. Why is that significant? Well, at this time, the Jews believed that David wrote all the Psalms. And they believed that this particular psalm referred to the coming Messiah. And then in verse 1 of Psalm 110, David calls, himself, or calls the coming Messiah his Lord. And so Jesus, the master teacher, asked, if I am David's son, how can he address me as Lord? You see, Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David, nor is he denying that he himself is the son of David. What he is saying is, I am more than the son of David. I'm not just his son, I am his Lord. So, after addressing the topic of identity, the teacher warns the crowd about the teachers. Jesus turns to the crowd and warns them about who is teaching them. And he says, beware, watch out for the teachers of the law. Why? Well, because they care more about status than they do the subject. They are more concerned about respect and honor than they are educating the people. Appearances were paramount among the religious teachers. They looked religious. They appeared to be spiritual. But you can look good on the outside 
but be blocked on the inside. Jesus says, stay away from these teachers because ultimately they don't care about you or the subject matter. All they care about is themselves. Don't pick your teachers based on charisma or status or attractiveness or speaking ability. Instead, listen to those who have a heart for God and who live like it in their daily lives. The people were listening to teachers who had a serious heart problem. Jesus came to educate them on what it means to be a kingdom citizen And according to our Lord, it all begins with love, not law. It's not that law was unimportant. It most certainly is important. But Jesus says, love is the most important thing. That's not me talking. That's our Lord. The foremost command, meaning the most important rule that you've got to follow, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second most important rule, if you're ranking them, second would be right up there with it, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then just for emphasis, he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything the prophets spoke of, everything they pointed to, everything the law states is predicated upon loving God and loving others. So, doesn't matter if you have right doctrine. Doesn't matter if you believe right things, teach right things. Doesn't matter if you memorize the entire Bible and come to worship every Sunday. Doesn't matter if you, you know, worship without a piano and, 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 and don't cuss and don't run around with women who do. None of that really matters if love is absent in your life. You know, I've, I've met a lot of folks who were quick to determine who was going to make it to heaven and who wasn't based on the things that they did or didn't do. Well, folks, let me tell you something right now. This right here is a salvation issue. No doubt this is a salvation issue. If you don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter what else you get right. That's not me talking. That's Jesus. He most definitely believed that the law was important. It was important in his day. Certainly God wouldn't give us commandments if he didn't expect us to follow them. Doctrine is important. What you believe is important. Theology is important. Keeping the laws are important. But law keeping without love is worthless. Law is motivated by love. In fact, love is the fulfillment of the law because Paul said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, I think far too many Christians are trying to find love and acceptance in all the wrong places. They're looking for it in rule following. We think that if we we follow the rules perfectly, that we can earn God's favor and he's going to love us. We look for it in theology. We think if we just believe right things, that God's going to love us more. We look for it in religious activity. If I'm at church every Sunday, every time the doors are open, if I read through my Bible in a year, if I pray three times a day, That's what pleases God. And here's what Paul would say to that. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now understand, all the things that Paul mentions here are vitally important. They're just worthless without love. 
Yes, you must follow God's commands. Yes, you must believe right things. Yes, you should, you should put a premium on the spiritual disciplines. But all those things are empty, null and void, without love. It all starts with the heart. A heart that is all in. Because a heart that beats for God will pump life into things like prayer and Bible study and worship, etc. Those things are empty rituals without love, without the relationship. A healthy heart promotes healthy habits. Because when my heart is in rhythm with God, when my heart is in rhythm with God, my life gets into rhythm as well. When my, when my heart is in rhythm with God, it shows up in the way that I live, in the things that I do, right? So this is what I want to do over the next few weeks. I want to take the Shema and break it down. You know what the Shema is? In Jewish orthodoxy, the Shema is what we just read. What Jesus said about loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. I want to take each facet of the Shema, heart, soul, mind, strength, and I want to break them down and each week look at these different aspects and what they mean for us as modern day Christians. And so obviously, in case you hadn't figured out this morning, we're starting with the heart. You remember those infomercials that uh, featured this guy, Ron Papil? You remember this guy? So he invented a a rotisserie oven. Maybe he didn't invent it, but he promoted it. But more than that, he invented probably the most iconic tagline in infomercial history. Anybody remember his, his motto? Set it and forget it. That's it. That's what we'd like to do with our heart, isn't it? We'd love to just set it and forget it. But we can't. Because as you've heard me say over and over again, your heart is movable. And it moves with your money, it moves with your career, it moves with your love interests, whatever it is that takes full importance in your life, your heart is inclined to it. Your heart will be wherever you want it to be, and unlike the thermostat in your house, you can't just set it and leave it alone. We'd like to do that, but our heart also has a default setting, doesn't it? And the default setting isn't God mode. The default setting most times is worldliness. And so we constantly have to check our heart and make sure that the setting is correct, making sure that it's always on God mode. Look with me at Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, starting at verse 112, this is what we read. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. You want a healthy heart? Within this little section of scripture, the psalmist gives us three habits of a healthy heart. And here they are. Hate, hide, and hope. And you think, well, really hate is part of having a healthy heart? Absolutely. Before you can love, you got to identify what you hate. And the psalmist does that. He says, I have inclined my heart first and foremost. And that's important because what he shows us is exactly what we just said, is that you have control over your heart. You can't set it and forget it. So he says, I have inclined my heart. He, he knew his heart was movable, and he knew that it had to be set on God mode. And then he jumps into what he hates and what he loves. I hate those who are double-minded, he says, which means unstable, wafflers, flip-floppers, people not unlike me, probably not unlike you at times. And probably the psalmist even was that way at times as well. Then he says, but I love your law. You know, before I can do what I love, I have to identify what I hate. Hate can be a powerful motivator for change. You probably know this. 
You must hate it before you can change it. And that's tough. Because I don't know about you, but many of the things that I love or at least like are the things that I should hate. I love chocolate mini donuts. I love frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts. I love Cool Ranch Doritos. I love those things. I love the taste. But I hate what they do to me. Since February, I've decided to get in better shape. You remember me talking about that earlier in the year. Well, I've stuck with it. I had to do my yearly checkup. My cholesterol was never bad, but I lowered it 20 points. My waist size, I've cut three inches. I mean, I've made some progress. But I don't like the fact that I can't eat chocolate mini donuts anymore. I despise the fact that I can't have four or five strawberry Pop-Tarts for breakfast. I love those things, but I hate what they do to me. And I can look like the picture of health on the outside, perhaps, and still be blocked on the inside. I don't think I'm probably ever going to have to worry about being overweight. My dad's never had to worry about that, but my dad's had two heart attacks. And you look at my dad, you would never think that this would be somebody who was unhealthy. But there's a lot of factors that play into that, and one of those is what we eat and what we take in. And so, therefore, there's a lot of things that that I would love to eat more of, but I don't like what they do to me. I like how they taste, but I don't like the outcome. You know, my anger is one of those things. It feels pretty good to let out my anger, to punch something, to hit something, to to scream at something. In the moment, I love it, but I hate what it does to me. I hate the person that I turn into. And it's this love-hate relationship that we have with so many things that makes it so difficult for us to overcome. But until you hate the outcome more than the taste, you will never change. Let me say that again. Until you hate the outcome more than the taste, you're never going to change it. Remember when Absalom was in hot pursuit of King David? Absalom was hunting down his father to kill him. And David's men end the threat. David learns of Absalom's death and he weeps bitterly. The day of victory has turned into a day of mourning. And Joab, the captain of David's army, is not happy. He confronts the king and says these words, Today you have shamed all your servants who have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. Man, I can relate to that, can't you? It's a love-hate relationship. Love what hates you, hate what loves you. I've been there, and I'm sure you have been there as well. We all have this love-hate relationship with something. We love the taste, but we hate the outcome. We know we shouldn't love it as much as we do, but we can't muster up enough courage or hate to turn away from it. But until I hate it in my heart, it will never be expelled from my heart. If you don't despise Egypt, you're always going to be tempted to return there, right? I hate racism. I hate it with a passion. Therefore, I'm going to do everything I can to make certain that it doesn't live in my heart. I hate being late. I hate it. I will arrive 30 minutes early somewhere just because I hate being late so much. I hate procrastination. I prepare sermons a year in advance because I just don't like to wait. I don't like to procrastinate. Because I don't like it, I do something about it. You see, until you hate the thing that brings you negative outcomes, you're never going to change it. But secondly, I want you to notice what the psalmist says. He says, you are my hiding place and my shield. Do you know where to hide? 
Do you have a place that you currently go to hide? Where do you go for protection? Because we all need a hiding place, don't we? We all need a refuge from the trials and the temptations of this world. Where is your hiding place? All too often, we run to the same enemy who's trying to kill us, don't we? All too often, that's what we do. We seek refuge in pills, in alcohol, in pornography, or other things that are the enemy. We run and hide in enemy-occupied territory. And I don't have to tell you, but that's a really silly way of doing things. It's an awful strategy because you can't hide in enemy-occupied territory. Remember when Elijah was on the run? We talked about David being on the run. Remember when Elijah was on the run from the evil woman Jezebel? And he finds a cave to hide in. We won't read through all that, but you can go back and look at it. You probably remember it. Elijah hides in a cave and God comes to him and says, what are you doing? And he gives a very well thought out response. And God says, no, you don't hide in the cave. I'm your refuge. I'm the one that you find refuge in. I'm your hiding place. Where's your hiding place? I would encourage you to find that place now. Don't wait until the trials or the temptations come. Find that hiding place right now. Find that place of refuge right now. Don't wait until the pressure is on. Regularly go and hide so that you will be prepared when the enemy is threatening. You go to God in prayer. You go to Him in Scripture study. You go to Him in worship. You go to Him in service. Lord, hide me away, O Lord, in the day of trouble, neath the shadow of your wings. Hide me away, O Lord, safe in your dwelling place, safe in your dwelling place. Notice verse 114 of Psalm 119 again. The psalmist says, I wait for your word. The psalmist has placed his hope in the only one who could rescue him. When the enemy presses in, the psalmist knows that he will be protected because his hiding place is in the Lord. And so the question is, where is your hope? Identify your hiding place and then identify your hope. Are you waiting for his word? Now, here's the deal. He's already spoken. God's not giving you some new revelation. He's written his word. It's down. It's on paper. You can go to it. Are you listening, though? Are you listening for his word? He said that he's coming back. He's instructed us on what to do until he does return. The question is, are you listening? Listen to what Peter writes to the exiles in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that line, the end of all things is here. Then he inserts a therefore, which tells us, obviously, that whatever Peter has just said is going to be connected with what he's about to say. Or what he's about to say is going to be connected to what he just said. Therefore, since the end of all things is near, well, we got to do something to prepare, right? we got to do something in the meantime. And here's what Peter says to do. My words, not his, but in so many words, this is what he says. Don't panic. Stay calm. Don't be so touchy. In other words, stop whining and complaining and start doing. Don't lock your door. Be hospitable. And don't waste what God has given you. And I'm sure you notice a commonality in these instructions. Peter is exhorting exiles to prepare for Jesus' coming. And preparation involves doing. Keep praying, keep loving, keep serving. In other words, let Jesus find you being Jesus when Jesus returns. Don't just hunker down. Don't just sit back and do nothing. Understand this hope is not wishful thinking. God has made a promise, and you can take it to the bank. You know, I, I look at the weather during you know, the months that it gets a little colder to see what the day ahead is going to look like. I don't just hope it's not cold. I look and I I grab a coat. We don't have to just hope that conditions and circumstances are just right. We have hope in the midst of any conditions or circumstances. So be active in your hope. God has given us real reasons to take him at his word. He has always come through. Let our hope then go to work. Let's show how serious we are about this hope by living it out in our daily lives and with everyone we come in contact with, showing them the reason for our hope. You know, I used to play video games as a kid, and when I was younger, you actually went to the arcade, and the arcade was a building that housed these standalone video games, whether it was Galaga or Pac-Man or whatever the game may be. You took your money and you exchanged it for tokens. And you dropped these tokens in the slot. And the goal was to try to beat the game. That was always the goal, is to try to beat the game. Whatever the game was, you were trying to beat it. Now, later on, when I got into junior high and even high school, gaming systems came out, home gaming systems. So now, you could have the arcades in your living room on a console, whether it was Atari or Nintendo or whatever the gaming system was. Of course, now they're even more advanced than back then. But it was life-changing for me. Now, I didn't have to waste my money dropping tokens into the slot. You pay that money on the front end. Now, you just waste your time sitting in front of a TV playing the game. But still, the goal was the same, to try to beat the game. That was always the goal. And you always got a certain amount of lives to try to beat the game, usually three. You had three lives, which represented opportunities or chances to beat the game. Now, you could earn more lives depending on how many levels that you got to and all that. But the goal was to beat the game with the lives that you had. So, if the goal is to beat the game, the worst words you could ever see come on the screen were what? Game over. No gamer likes to see those words. That means that you didn't beat the game, but in fact, you lost. And so you know what I did to ever avoid those words? 
when it looked like the inevitable was going to happen, you know what I did? I hit reset. It's the equivalent of playing checkers or chess with someone. You know, you're getting beat and you flip the board over, you know, and mess it up. If I knew that I was about to lose and the game was about to be over, I did a preemptive interruption by resetting the whole thing. And, you know, we all need that, don't we? We all need a reset from time to time. Our heart gets out of rhythm. It begins to beat for other things. And it's in these times that we need to do a hard reset and get our hearts beating for God again. Do you need to do that this morning? Do you need to shock your heart back into rhythm? Is it beating out of step with God? Are you suffering from spiritual arrhythmia or AFib? Do you need to get your heart back in rhythm? If so, don't put it off because let me tell you something. Your cardiovascular spiritual health is more important than anything else. Get your heart right with God because it affects everything else in your life. So get heart healthy this morning. Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If you need, a, need prayers, you need a, you know, the encouragement of this church family, anything you might need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.